Our scripture passage for this morning is Luke chapter 1, verses 34 and 35. Hear now the word of God. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you know the immense need of your people. In this time, we need more than to know and believe true things about your Son. We need to hear and to believe your promises and to know you by him. Would you help us to hear them today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Last week, we were very focused on the incarnation of Christ, and in particular on what the incarnation has to say to us as human beings about how we see ourselves and how we see one another. And part of what we talked about was the fact that because Jesus Christ became one of us, we know that all mankind is precious. We know that mankind is made to worship, and we know that mankind was made for glory. But this week, I'd like to move a bit further into Luke's discussion of the incarnation. I want us to move to the question of how. The question of how. Um, And the reason I want us to ask this question is because Mary raises it. Mary raises the question in verse 34. She specifically says, how will this be since I am a virgin? Right. Emphasis on the how. She, she's not questioning that it's happening. She is questioning how it will happen. Um, and the answer here that Gabriel gives it tells us something very precious. The answer he gives tells us that the whole Godhead, all three persons of the Trinity, are at work in the incarnation. Because by Gabriel's account, Mary will become pregnant and she does not become pregnant through a raw creative act where God speaks and suddenly Mary becomes pregnant. Uh, Instead, the angel dictates a process that he outlines this way. Listen to how the angel describes it one more time. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So, so right here we have all three persons of the Trinity at work in this moment. Gabriel could have said, God's going to do it. And, and in essence, you might think that's what he says, but he actually gives her more than just simply God's going to do it. Because we have the Son who becomes incarnate, right? No other person of the Godhead becomes incarnate. Only the Son becomes incarnate. Uh, in this passage, we have the Spirit who does the overshadowing. But we also have the God, whom the Father, whom we're told elsewhere plans and predestines all of this and of whom the Son is begotten in all eternity and from whom together with the Son, the Spirit proceeds. 
The doctrine of the Trinity is among the most precious, important, and basic doctrines of the Christian faith. It is also a doctrine that all Christians are challenged by. I said all Christians. I didn't just say the novices, the new Christians. Um, All Christians are challenged by the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, At its most basic, the doctrine of the Trinity is the scriptural doctrine that there is one God only. In three persons. All three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, are fully and completely God All of them equal in power and glory. Within the doctrine of the Trinity is an important principle that with regard to God's works, the outward works of those three persons cannot be divided from the other persons. And so what that means is that because all three persons share the divine agency of one God, we do not serve a God who is secretly three gods. Uh, He really is one God in three persons, only one God with one nature and one will, always at work together. Um, The church father, who is perhaps best remembered for his spirited defense of the Trinity, is Athanasius, uh, named my uh, second born son after Athanasius. If you ask him, how do you spell your middle name? He can't tell you. Um, I want you to see in a very practical way, uh, I, just, I love Athanasius. He doesn't get, cut, get brought up enough in my sermons, so I have to force it sometimes. But I want you to see Athanasius. You know, he's writing in around the three to, to four hundreds time period, the mid three hundreds. About 1700 years ago, he had something to say. And the reason I want to quote this to you is because I want you to see that when we're talking about Something that sounds so dense as the inseparable operations of the persons of the Trinity. That sounds so clinical. Um, I want you to see that there is spiritual payoff for a doctrine like this. And Athanasius talks about this. So I want, I'm going to read it slowly, but I want you to listen to the, the weightiness of what he has to say. And this is what he has to say. He says, thus the Father is light and his radiance is the Son. And so we are also permitted to see in the Son the Spirit in whom we are enlightened. But when we are enlightened in the Spirit, it is Christ who enlightens us in Him. And again, the Father is the fountain and the Son is called the river. And so we are said to drink of the Spirit. But when we drink of the Spirit, we drink of Christ. So what I want you to see there is the way that when you talk about the work of one person, you're never just talking about the work of one of the persons. I want you to see in this example how the three persons are always bound up together in what God does for us in our spiritual lives. So in in other words, I, I don't want you to see this as something that's abstract. Um, I don't want you to see... A doctrinal conversation that is for the nerds. I want you to see that these serious, heavy, I think the doctrine of the inseparable operations of the persons of the Trinity (laughs) seems pretty heady to us. And yet my hope is that you will see that it is not heady at all, but that in fact it is just a deeply precious 
biblical doctrine. So that when we look at the Son, we're looking also at the work of the Father and the Spirit. All three of them always working together for us. One of the things we have to say is that, yes, we distinguish each person's work, but we don't separate their work. We do not worship three gods. We worship one God. Only one God is the creator of all things. There is only one God. And Athanasius says this in another place. He says the Trinity is indivisible in nature and it has one activity. And so this matters to us. This matters to us at Christmas time because what we're talking about is the moment in history when one of those persons did something that the other persons were involved in, but that they did not themselves do. The son himself became incarnate. The father did not become incarnate. The spirit did not become incarnate. And yet he didn't become incarnate apart from the father or apart from the spirit. Um, There's one reformer I don't quote very often in my sermons, Peter Martyr Vermilie. Uh, Here is how Peter Martyr summarizes the biblical approach to the incarnation. Here's what Peter Martyr says. He says, Christ alone took to himself our human nature. But the efficient cause of the action is the entire Godhead. It is only the union of natures in the person of Christ and the work of salvation accomplished in the incarnate one that belongs restrictively to the Son. And of course, even those events are willed by the triune God. So trying trying to highlight for you what Christ does and how it is right for us to speak of Christ being incarnate and the Father and the Spirit not being incarnate. The only Christian doctrine, I think, that is more mysterious than the Trinity is the incarnation. And what makes the incarnation even more mysterious and challenging to think clearly about is the fact that it also involves the doctrine of the Trinity. Right? So we are talking at Christmas time about the two most difficult aspects of the Christian religion at the same time. There is one God and one of God's persons became incarnate. All of this feels confusing. And if it does, think of this in scriptural terms. There is only one God. The Old Testament very clearly teaches, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, not not three gods. And yet Paul, while affirming that, says in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So for Paul, three persons, all working for us, all together, and yet Paul distinguishes the persons and what they do and how they bless us. So it's biblical for us to think this way. But if you could divide up and separate the outward works of the persons of the Trinity, the reason you can't do that and the reason that we should not do that is because it does not imply one God. It implies three gods. The Bible is very clear. There is only one God. And so even in the incarnation, what I want you to see is that the persons do and can be distinguished from each other, but never divided, never separated. Even the things we distinguish about the persons still involve the other persons. The three persons are always at work in all that God does. And this goes equally for the incarnation. And so while the incarnation is the incarnation of the person of the Son, it is by the Trinity. 
It is the incarnation of the Son alone, but in the incarnation, the Son is not alone. And so this morning, let's, let's appreciate the role of the other persons in a way that I think we may not do very often. In particular, this text puts a special focus on the Spirit's work, but never to the exclusion of the Father or the Son. And so the three points I'd like us to be guided by, uh, Jesus is incarnate by the Spirit, Jesus is indwelt by the Spirit, and Jesus is even today ministering by the Spirit. Incarnate, indwelling, ministering, all things that Jesus did by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, first, Jesus was incarnate by the Spirit. When we say incarnate, we mean he took on flesh. Uh, the Holy Spirit has an important role in the actual conception of Jesus, according to Luke. Um, Gabriel uses two terms here in answering her question. Remember, she asks a how question. And someday, you know, when I think about the sort of things that I'm going to do when I am face to face with our God, I think I have a lot of how questions that I'm going to ask him. I think that may, may be the bulk of, of my questions. If he's doing a question and answer time, I'm going to come to him with a list. And I think that it is very fair that Mary's, Mary's request here is a how question. Someone's in front of you and going to answer it. What's the one question you're going to ask? How? And so she asks the how question and Gabriel gives her an answer. And he, he uses two terms here to describe the Spirit's work. He uses the phrase come upon and he uses the term overshadow. And so if you look at the Greek word that, that, that gets translated as come upon, it is standard Old Testament phrases for the Spirit's activity. Like when, like when the Spirit comes upon Samson, right? That's, that's, the kind of, that's the kind of the way that the word gets used in the Old Testament. Uh, in Isaiah 35, 15, um, the, they, Isaiah uses that phrase for the Spirit being poured upon his people. So you could say that the, he's saying the Spirit's going to be poured upon you. He's going to be poured upon you. We translate it as come upon, poured upon. Um, but then Gabriel also uses another word here. He uses the word overshadow. And in scripture, this is a word for the spirit's presence and the miraculous activity of God. But neither of these words is normal language for baby making in the Old Testament. If I could use that phrase, I know that sounds a little crude. In other words, we would not say that God is the father in the same way that Mary is the mother. We wouldn't say that God is the father in the same way that Mary is the mother. Um, there is a misconception that Islam has, for example, of Christianity. Because in Islam, there is a misunderstanding because Muslims think that for God to be father, he must have had a physical relationship with Mary. And this simply is not true and does not have any basis in Christian theology. Interestingly, this is an aspect of Mormonism. The supposed prophets of Mormonism deny that Jesus was begotten by the Spirit. They don't just give another explanation and omit the Spirit. They deny that Jesus was begotten by the Spirit. Instead, Mormonism teaches that the Father had a physical body and that he physically slept with Mary and that Jesus was physically conceived by the Father in Mary the same way all of us conceive and have children. 
one blushes to say it, but they do, in fact, say it. So if you don't mind me being direct for a moment, these are blasphemous, disgusting things to teach. And they outright ignore direct passages such as the one before us this morning. God has no body by which to physically conceive. Gabriel is very clear how the conception happens. It happens by work of the Spirit. The conception is spiritual. It is done by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Gabriel says more. He says to Mary that the Spirit will move upon her in some way. But notice that he's not giving the sort of scientific details here that I think we as modern readers want. We want, the, we want things explained down to the most minute level so that we can finally say, okay, you've explained it with great satisfaction to me. Now I understand. But one thing Gabriel does tell us is that the work of the Spirit here is the ground of his being called the Son of God. Um, Gabriel says the spirit will overshadow Mary. Then he says, therefore, the child will be born and be called holy. And so that word, therefore, is an indicator of a chain of logic. It's a chain of an argument. The argument is that the spirit moves and as a conclusion, the child is called holy. Right? It is the spirit who ensures that the child is holy and sanctified and that the child is called the son of God. Now, all of this is important because God does not simply speak the presence of a previously non-existent embryo into Mary's womb. He fertilizes the existing egg of Mary. Christ's nature was not made. Here's another Latin phrase for you. His human nature was not made ex nihilo. Now, if you've got some St. Stephen's kids in here, ask them later what that means. Okay, I won't make you wait. It means from nothing, right? The egg was not made from nothing. It was made from Mary's substance. Here's why that is very important to you. I've mentioned it last week. The incarnation is not just about having a cozy evening and a picture of a child in a manger. That is not the end goal. That's not the purpose. The purpose is to have our sins forgiven, right? The purpose is the reason for which Christ came. Christ came with a human body. He, he came incarnate to save us from our sins. Here is why all of this is very important. Just like you and I have a human family history. I don't know if any of you have taken like a 23andMe test and you looked up and you found out where you are. Like I'm from the whitest of the white regions of planet Earth. Like that's me. Um, that's what I found out from, actually, I didn't take it. My brother did. I'm just coasting off of his, uh, his 23andMe. Um, but you've seen my brother, maybe he looks exactly like me. I have no problem running off of his 23andMe. Um, but if you've taken a 23andMe, what you find out is you have a family history. You have a physical line that you come from, but I can tell you this and I can promise you this. If you trace that line far enough back, all of us end up with the same father and mother, right? We all go back to the same place. Just like we have a common father and mother and a history, Jesus had a family history. Jesus would have had a family resemblance to Mary, right? Think about this. This is very important because as human beings, here's what we need. We need a savior who was one of us. 
actually one of us. He needed to be part of the chain of human existence and human life. We needed somebody with a family history that also goes back to Adam and Eve in the garden. Because if he is not made from, from Mary's substance, then, then our Savior is, for lack of a better term, an alien being who is not true man. He needs to be made from Mary's substance because he needs to be part of the human family. Because if he's not, then he can't save us from our sins. To me, what's amazing here is that when, when Jesus becomes incarnate, he assumes a human nature from us, not from nothing. But he is also sent, not created. Right? So... He is sent by adding a new mode of existence to what he already had as a divine person. The divine person in the incarnation, the divine person of the son takes on human nature at the same moment that his human nature is fertilized from the substance of Mary. And this, Gabriel says, is the work of the spirit. The son's divine and human natures are united in the person and both continue to exist. Neither ceases to exist, neither disappears, neither goes away. There is no subtraction in the incarnation, only addition. Why does that matter? Because when Jesus, 30 30 plus years later, when Jesus is on the cross and he is suffering and dying He is innocent and he also is one who is dying for his people and as one of his people, he must be one of these people or his death does not cover us. He always lives and he always dies as a man because God knew we needed a savior who was like us in every respect. And so his human nature is never invaded or changed or transformed By the presence of the divine nature. Instead both of these natures are held together in the person. Who is both natures. And they are not mixed. The the fancy theological term we use for this. After all I'm throwing a lot of them out today. uh, Is the hypostatic union. You don't have to remember that term. It will not be on the test. But at the next Christmas party. Pull it out right. Just say it in passing. Like you know as everyone is wont to do. The, 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 the hypostatic union is the reason these two natures are held together and not mixed together. They're held together in the person and they're not mixed. Because just like his human nature is never changed or absorbed into the divine nature, it's also the case that his divine nature is never changed or absorbed by the human nature either. Again, we need a savior who is fully man, but we also need a savior who is fully God because our sin is, our sin is infinitely offensive to God. Something must be done for us to dwell together with such a holy God. A mere mortal man cannot provide that. If either of his natures are changed or lost or transformed by the incarnation, then Christ can't be our savior because he won't be us And he wouldn't be our savior because his death would not be of infinite value. We need him to be both. Why is it worth it for us to dwell on this? Especially if your head has started spinning. In part, I believe that the church has long believed that to dwell on this is a great blessing. And it fortifies our faith to meditate upon something like this. 
Another answer I might give is that we need to be encouraged to contemplate God. How, when was the last time you were told that you should contemplate God? Contemplation is, if you really want to think about it at its most basic level, contemplation is thinking in a deep and sustained way about something that's important. That's what contemplation is. I think many Christians, maybe, maybe, maybe it's us as Protestants, we're just allergic to the idea of contemplating God. We mistakenly think that it's something only monks are meant to do. The idea of simply thinking deeply about God, thinking deeply about his nature, thinking deeply about his greatness and his glory, and sort of being bowled over by his magnificence and not following it up with a list of applications for us is tough right we're so we're so pragmatic as americans you know we want to know the point we want to know the payoff we want to know what do we get from it uh we want five ways to blah 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 and yet the writers of scripture read the psalms the writers of scripture frequently engage in contemplation of god and his greatness they just they just think about god for god's sake um Contemplation and focus on God is something we ought to see as a good. To simply see and savor and know this God who is so altogether different from us is an element of worship that we don't often engage in if we're really honest with ourselves. We're so busy, we move on. We don't think, we don't let ourselves just be quiet for a little while. We don't let ourselves hold on to the idea of the greatness of some aspect of God and let our minds be filled with it. And instead, we want to move on quickly. Thinking this way does something, though. It drives us into the deep things of God. It fortifies our worship of God so that we go further than just making surface affirmations, right? To ask that question, what are the lengths that God has gone to? In order to secure our redemption. We are actually great at contemplating. We just contemplate stupid stuff. We do. We just contemplate stupid stuff. We, we chew on and can I use the word cogitate? We cogitate on really menial, dumb things. So we're very gifted at it. Um, what I'm encouraging you to do is to take that energy of contemplation and instead of, of thinking about what would happen if the Death Star was made of cheese, you know, I woke up this morning, have, I had a dream that my porch was, was, that there was an army of snakes under my porch. And so I woke up this morning thinking I probably should check my porch for snakes. And so instead of waking up thinking about God, I just kept thinking about snakes this morning. Um, but you know what? Um, I'm also a huge nerd. And so I oftentimes think, is Gandalf the white the same as Gandalf the gray? And I'm, I'm a great contemplator. Maybe I'm the only one who contemplates stupid things like that. But I'm telling you, I have a feeling we are all very gifted at contemplation. And we, are, we should be encouraged from the pulpit to turn our contemplative, contemplative energies toward things that matter. In an age where we devote ourselves to so many trivialities, memorizing the dating lives of celebrities, knowing the voting records of politicians who aren't even in our particular state or district. Um, I bet some of you know the voting records of people that you are not allowed to vote for. Um, 
Why can we not? And why would we not devote ourselves to contemplating something that matters, that takes effort and focus, but that also relates to the most important thing we can think of in all of the universe? Why not give our energies to this? Why not dwell on something as precious and important as the incarnation of our Savior? Why not talk about the undivided work of the persons of the Trinity? Can we think of anything greater or more worthy of our attention? Uh, Meet me afterwards and you can tell me something more important and we'll talk about whether it is, right? But this is what Luke's account does today. It drives us to remember that Jesus was incarnate by the Holy Spirit. I want you to see the work of the Spirit in the incarnation. It's not just a work of the Son. Second, we see in the incarnation that Jesus was indwelt by the Spirit. Um, It's at this point we start to move from the birth of Jesus into the life of Jesus. But it's not just Jesus' birth in which the Spirit's at work overshadowing Mary. The Spirit is also at work in the rest of Jesus' life. And before I say too much, I want to be careful to say... We are focusing on the spirit here. We're focusing on his role in the incarnation and his, his role in the life and ministry of Jesus. But please do not, don't make the mistake of thinking this means the father was not involved in the earthly ministry of Jesus. So even as Christ lives his earthly ministry indwelt by the spirit, working by the spirit's power, which we'll get to, I'll, I'll, I'll show you this from scripture The Father also is one that he depends upon. Um, It's not just, it's not like the Father sort of watches aloof and observes the ministry of the incarnate Son from afar. Instead, we know from the, the Gospel of John, and I can give you scripture references for all these, but I won't do it. We know from the Gospel of John that Jesus tells us that he depends on the Father for his life, he depends on the Father for his power, he depends upon the Father for his knowledge. He depends upon the Father for his message. He depends upon the Father for his mission. He depends upon the Father for his instruction, his authority, his glory, and his love. All of these are things that he says he depends upon the Father for. So when we say that Jesus' earthly ministry is one of dependence on the Father and the Spirit, it is worth returning to something that we touched on at the beginning. From eternity, the three persons of the Godhead have always been at work cooperatively in and with one another because they share in the same nature and they share in the same will. The Son never did anything apart from the Father. The Spirit never did anything separate or apart from the Father or the Son. There is no dividing the persons apart from one another or speaking of one another in a way that doesn't involve the others. As one God, the three persons have the same will. They are distinct, but never separate. And so just as Jesus lives depending on the Father, and just as he lives his earthly ministry by the power of the Spirit, just know that it has always been this way with the persons of the Trinity. Their works in this world cannot be divided from each other. I'm sort of belaboring this in a way. Uh, in a way that I hope helps you to see that when we think of the Father or the Son of the Spirit ministering or doing something, we should not think of that to the exclusion of the other persons. In fact, we should have our eyes open for the ways in which the Father is also involved in the work of the Son and in the work of the Spirit. 
What I want us to do, though, is to appreciate the Spirit's role in the life of Jesus. Think of the life and ministry of Jesus as an orchestral movement. An orchestral movement of the three persons working for the purpose of absolutely and perfectly achieving our salvation. Um, Scott Swain says it like this, and I think this is a good summary. He says, Jesus is the son living out in human form his eternal relationship with the father in the spirit for our saving benefit. You know, you see the work of the Father and Spirit in the incarnate ministry of of the Son, for example, at Jesus' baptism, right? The Son is baptized, the Spirit descends, and the Father speaks, right? You see very clearly that happening. Uh, Later in Luke, in chapter 4, Jesus is sent into the desert by the Spirit, and he is tempted by Satan there. But then in verse 14, it says Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, And then he goes into the synagogue and four verses after he returns from the desert, he reads from the scroll of Isaiah chapter 61, which says this. This is Jesus reading and applying it to himself. He said, it says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus says, this is me. The spirit is upon me for the work of the ministry that I've been given. And so Jesus wants us to know that he wasn't just incarnate by the spirit. It's not like the spirit's role in his life is sort of a one-time thing, right? At the, at the conception. Instead, he, he wants us to know he's still indwelt. He's still empowered by the Holy Spirit. He does nothing on his own. Uh, Isaiah 42 has a similar passage that says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. There's God saying that his servant in whom he delights is indwelt by his spirit. And, and, And there you see exactly what we've been talking about. The ministry of the son sent and upheld by the father, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. When you think of the incarnation, do you think of the whole Trinity at work? Do you think of the Father? Do you think of the Son? Do you think of the Spirit all working in concert as one for your good and for your salvation? I think think if we did that, we would not only feel more secure. I mean that in an experiential sense. We would feel more secure if we thought about the fact that all three persons of the Godhead are for us and are working for us. But I also think we would give greater glory to all three of those persons for what they have achieved on our behalf. Um, Sinclair Ferguson uh, has a great book called, just called The Holy Spirit. You don't get a better title of a book than that. If you wonder what the book's about, you have the title to look at. Uh, The book's called The Holy Spirit. And in that book, he sees the work of the Spirit in all of the life and ministry of Jesus. Just listen to, to Ferguson for a second here. For Luke, the whole of Jesus's ministry following his baptism is exercised in the power of the Messianic Spirit. He has been anointed to engage in a power conflict. The result is that his preaching has authority. 
His word has exercising and liberating power and his touch heals all. Nothing is outside of his dominion. The wonders he performs are accomplished in the energy and in the presence of the Holy Spirit. We have examples of the Spirit's work throughout all of Jesus's life and ministry, uh, even in his death and resurrection. Jesus tells us, for example, that when we find ourselves standing trial and facing persecution, that the Holy Spirit will give us what to say. And we see that with Christ as well, right? Jesus is standing trial. And just as the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, so he led Christ to his death, comforting and caring for him along the way. Paul tells us that even the resurrection of Jesus was accomplished by the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the agency of resurrection. He reminds us that it was the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. And truly, when we say that, say all of this, we are barely scratching the surface. I just I want you to notice the Spirit's work in the beginning and the middle. And the end of Jesus's ministry. He is there with Jesus all his life. He is comprehensively a part of Jesus's life in a way that I think we probably neglect. In a way that we probably don't have our eyes open for. But once we have our eyes opened to it, we start to see it all over the place in the Gospels. Why do I say all of this? To emphasize that God the Father, God the Son... And God the Holy Spirit all worked in distinct but concerted ways for our good and for our salvation in the incarnation, in the life, in the ministry, in the death, and in the resurrection of Jesus. Third, just as the Holy Spirit was at work in the conception of Jesus in the Virgin Mary, just as he indwelt Jesus in his life and ministry during his time on earth, Jesus continues to minister to us by the Spirit. When Jesus is raised up into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, we say this in the creed every other week. His ministry doesn't stop, right? He, his, his, when he ascends into heaven, it's not like, well, my ministry has come to an end now. Instead, it's exactly the opposite. His ministry improves. His ministry improves when he physically leaves earth and he physically goes to be at the Father's right hand. Um, And the reason we know this is because Jesus said so. In John chapter 16, he actually says to the disciples, it's better for me to physically leave than to stay here. He says, he says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. That's John 16, 7. Isn't that amazing? The incarnation is so amazing. It's so glorious. It's so mysterious. It's so grand. It's such a blessing. If you had asked the disciples, would you rather have Jesus here or gone? (laughs) They would have said, I want him here. I want him here. And Jesus says to them, it's better that I'm not here. Can you believe that? His earthly ministry has so many blessings, but his ascended ministry is better. His ministry is better by by the Holy Spirit. And and he reminds us that the Holy Spirit's ministry is his ministry. So he doesn't want us in our minds to think that the Spirit's ministry is not his ministry. Instead, it is the Son's ministry. In John 14, 18, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. 
I will come to you. So the Spirit comes, and Jesus says, when the Spirit comes, I'm the one who comes. He promises, he's not mixing the persons together. He's not saying that I am the Spirit, but it is the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. So remember we say we don't divide the work of the persons apart from one another. When one person is working, the other persons are working, and yet they remain distinct. And so he promises that when we repent of our sins and turn to him in faith and trust him for our salvation, we receive his spirit. And when we do that, we're not just receiving forgiveness. We are receiving a person. We are receiving the person of the spirit. And in the person of the spirit, we're receiving Christ. Because remember what we said, I've been talking about this. This is sort of the bell that we've been ringing today. The ministry of the persons of the Trinity aren't divided. When the Spirit ministers, Christ ministers. And when Christ is ministering, the Father and the Spirit are always ministering as well. Here's the thing. Because Jesus keeps ministering by his Spirit, it means that when we... When we study and contemplate the incarnation during this season, for example, we are not just dispassionately studying history. We're not talking about the past only. We're talking about the present and future too. Right? Because the incarnation is a present reality. Jesus was incarnate and continues to be incarnate. Jesus is still a man. That makes Christmas relevant. It doesn't make it just history. It is still relevant to us because Jesus still has a body. Um, I remember being told that when I was, when, uh, I don't remember how old I was, but I do not remember knowing that when I was younger. I feel like, an, like I was a young man at the time and somebody mentioned to me that Jesus still has a body. And I was like, no, he doesn't. They were like, what do you think? That he just dissolved in, into the, when he disappeared into the clouds? And I was like, I don't know. I think I believed that he turned into some kind of cloud. And they were like, well, think about it. Jesus still has a body. He still sits at the Father's right hand. He is still physical. If you ask me to scientifically explain the location in which Jesus' body is located, I will fail you. I can't give you an answer to that. But I know that, our, that, our, that the Son of God is still the Son of God, and I know that he still has a body. Scripture promises this. Why? Not only did he go into heaven and didn't disappear, but he says he's returning again. And to return, he must exist. He has a body, and he's returning again. Now, the incarnation says Jesus is still with us. This is still relevant. We're talking about the present, not the past. Jesus is still ministering to us. We are not alone. And now is even better than it was. There's no room here for nostalgia. There's no room for us to, oh, I wish I could go back to the Christmas night on which Jesus was born and be in that stable. You know what Jesus says? His ascended ministry is better. His ascended ministry right now in the present is better. Because here's what you should see when you look at the manger. You see the answer to a promise. We will never be alone. No matter how we may feel, no matter what the world may say, Jesus was born as one of us and we have a savior and we are not alone. Because he lived and he ministered by the Spirit's power, we have a Lord. And because he ascended and because he has sent his Spirit, we are not alone. 
We are not as orphans. Instead, he himself has come to us. But all of this began with the announcement of the angel to a frightened young woman and with a promise, now that he is one of us, we will never be alone again. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you you loved us so much that you sent your son, born of a woman, incarnate by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. What incredible love. What incredible wisdom. What an incredible ongoing reality that is still true even now, even today. In your son, Your love has walked among us. Your love has tasted our sorrow and even now continues to bless us richly. We thank you, O God, in Jesus' name. Amen.